Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Across the States. Earlier this week, we were honored when renowned historian and 47th Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, stopped by to talk with Alex CEO Lisa B. Nelson about the emergence of China, what the United States can do to counter Beijing, and so much more. Listen in as the two take a deep dive into the rise of communist China. Hello, and welcome to Across the States, the premier state policy podcast from the American Legislative Exchange Council. I'm your host, Lisa Nelson. Joining me today is historian, author, and 50th Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Today, we'll discuss the question of China foreign policy and what we can learn from the differing postures of Presidents Trump and Biden. How did the United States get here? Regarding our relationship with Beijing, how much of a threat does China pose to the United States and the free world? What are the internal dynamics of the Chinese society and what do lawmakers do in response to an emerging China? Mr. Speaker, welcome to Across the States. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. And as you know, I've had a very, very long and close relationship with Alec and uh, think that you are the preeminent provider of ideas and reform in all 50 states. So I'm delighted to have a chance to chat with you and to talk about one of the most important topics of the next half century. Well, I agree, and we're so happy to have you. Newt, I'd like to open with a very general question of how did we get here? Presidents from Nixon to Obama have engaged in a similar approach towards China based on the belief that integrating China into multilateral institutions like the WTO would lead to economic, political, and social liberalization. The results of that strategy did not work. China has flouted international rules and norms on IP theft, trade, and currency manipulation, and has built a massive state-owned enterprise masquerading as private companies. We've also witnessed serious human rights violations and the territorial incursions on the part of Beijing. In retrospect, how should we have managed the U.S.-China relationship, and how did President Trump shift the conversation? Well, I think uh, several very, very different questions. First, I think that China was seen as a very poor, relatively backward country with limited military capability. And in many ways, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon brought China into the modern diplomatic world in part in order to have a balance to offset against the Soviet Union. And at the time, their very real concerns were the steady buildup of Soviet military power and the danger that the Soviet Union might, in fact, at some point, attempt militarily to control Western Europe. So they thought, and I think most people agreed, that engaging China in the early 70s created a greater ability for the United States to balance off the Soviets and to do so at reasonable military cost without having to go into a huge buildup. From that, the general sense of almost the Chinese as our ally, which was never true, but it felt that way. It felt like, you know, we're, we're on the same side. And there was a romanticization of China, which had really gone on for a long time. A number of us, and I include myself in this list, misread what Deng Xiaoping, the dominant Chinese leader in the uh, 80s and early 90s, what he was trying to do. And it created a sense that they were really moving towards a Western, modern, democratic, capitalist society. 
he uh, went to what was called the, the Southern Tour in 91, 92, and he went into South China, and he understood that they were at a true economic crisis. And he basically had concluded that if they could not find a way to improve the economic circumstances of people, uh, that they would be thrown out by just popular hatred. So he developed a model which, which he basically said, I don't care if it's a white cat or a black cat. I only care if it catches the mouse. So all of us bought this model. And then it gradually became clear, starting in particular with uh, Tiananmen Square in 1989, that in fact, Deng Xiaoping was not a modernizer in the sense we mean by it. And uh, when I did a book uh, with Clara Christensen a couple of years ago on Trump versus China, and I sat down and I spent several months doing real research, I was really struck and I felt kind of embarrassed with how different China was and how different Deng Xiaoping was. It turned out that Deng Xiaoping had been a founding member of the Chinese Communist Party in the early 20s, had gone to Moscow and spent a year at Lenin University uh, learning the Leninist-Stalinist model, was a hardcore, deeply committed communist who believed in a hierarchical, centralized system like Lenin and Stalin. And what he was really saying was, look, we've got to maintain the dictatorship. The only way to maintain the dictatorship is to have the economy be prosperous. So let's divide up how we operate. We will be very open to economic growth. We will be very closed to political change. And in fact, it turned out that Deng Xiaoping was one of the people advocating killing students and demonstrators at Tiananmen Square. So we had all kind of gambled, and it was partly Western arrogance, our sense that the rule of law, the principles of fairness, uh, the ability to work together, all these things were so obvious and so desirable that if we could just get our, our little Chinese friends to understand them, that everything would work out. Well, it turned out the Chinese have a 5,000-year-old civilization. They've been giving the imperial examination for about uh, 2,100 years. And their depth of being Chinese is at, at least as great as our depth of being Western. And they actually didn't have any great interest in our system. They thought it was a chaotic, confusing system. Uh, it, was a, it was sloppy. It was unpredictable. And they also had a deep sense that China could become the dominant country in the world. So we're inviting them into things. And, and again, I was part of this. I, I, it's one of the great revelations of my lifetime to realize how stupid it was. But we were inviting them into places like the World Trade Organization because they were going to be fair. Well, that was baloney. The, the Chinese model is to take total advantage. And it's your problem. If you're dumb enough to be taken advantage of, that's your fault. If you're dumb enough to allow them to steal from you, that's your fault. If you're dumb enough to sign a contract that's totally one-sided in their favor, that's your fault. So a number of us began to really move in a different direction. We also began to realize that with the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and the rise of a much smaller Russia, much weaker Russia, that the Chinese suddenly had become the number one military and trade competitor in the world. And so I think by the time Trump comes along, as a businessman who's just applying practical business terms, uh, he's essentially saying, look, these guys are they are stealing from us every day. Why do we think they're our friends? And they're trying to steal the South China Sea. 
They're threatening Taiwan. They're fighting with India on its northern border in the mountains. Why are we pretending that they're okay? And I don't think Trump personally wanted to get into a fight with China, but I think he wanted to sort of draw a line in the sand and say, you're not going to be able to lie to us and cheat and get away with the way you used to. And that was an enormous shock to the Chinese. They'd, They'd been very used to Americans who were pretty stupid. And here was a guy who was applying a practical business-like bottom-line approach. And I think that they were very, very concerned. And I suspect they were delighted when their good friend, Joe Biden, who insists on telling all of us uh, how many hours he spent with Xi Jinping and how much they traveled together. And of course, Hunter Biden, who went to China with Joe and the various people that uh, Joe has surrounded himself with and national security and the Central Intelligence Agency and what have you. So I suspect that uh, Beijing right now regards us as uh, mildly crazy, totally chaotic, utterly unpredictable, but much, much less threatening. And that's dangerous in a way because there are things they could do in the South China Sea or there are things they could do with Taiwan, which could have us stumbling into a real war. And I think that it's really important for both the U.S. and China, to be very cautious and very careful about how we interact militarily around each other. Anyway, that's sort of a sweeping overview. Well, it's fascinating. And I think, you know, most of our listeners forget about the 5,000-year history that China has experienced and learned from. And, um, you know, watching that, we've discussed kind of this aggressive posture that China has taken against other sovereign nations. You pointed out India, you pointed out Taiwan, which I hope we'll get to in a minute. But it's interesting to me, and I wonder about your view of this, within its own borders, Beijing has now seemed to have adopted an increasingly hostile approach to controlling their own people. How is China utilizing the surveillance state and their new social credit scoring system to maintain that power? You touched on it a little bit, But is there anything that we can do to stop that and certainly understand it a little bit more and the motives behind it? Well, I think what happened was that there there was a brief period in the 90s and early 2000s where there was an effort to move towards a more open system. And that faction lost a power struggle inside the Chinese Communist Party. And the person they brought in was Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping's father was part of the old guard. And when Xi Jinping came in, it was the beginning of the end of freedom in China. And the reason was that the Chinese system had grown so corrupt that it was in real danger of discrediting itself with the Chinese people. I mean, there there was a scale of corruption that's really hard to imagine, but which was deeply embedded in Chinese history. And Xi Jinping came in and, and, uh, for example, told Henry Kissinger, very early, about 2011 or 12, that he was going to institute reforms and he was going to clean the place up and that he realized that he could lose and in which case he would probably be killed. But he said, uh, we can't possibly operate in the modern world with the level of corruption we currently have. Well, you know, turns out that the, the state police systems that are used against corruption can also be used against political dissent. They can be used against religious dissent, et cetera. And it turned out also that Xi Jinping had a very clear policy that he would sustain his popularity 
by representing a militant greater China and would not tolerate dissent. Well, the first really big break of that, I think, was with Hong Kong because Hong Kong had become relatively free. And so the ability to dissent was uh, very central to the way Hong Kong was operating. And when Xi Jinping comes along and says, okay, no more dissenting, the hardline pro-democratic forces in Hong Kong decided to push the envelope and to take on the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, And frankly, the Chinese Communist Party is a very formidable totalitarian system. So they moved in troops, they moved in secret police, and they broke the resistance in Hong Kong, sent people to jail. I think probably in in monetary purposes, they probably devalued uh, investments in Hong Kong by billions because all of a sudden it went from being one of the great, safe, secure, rule of law places on the entire planet to a place that clearly was now subservient to Beijing. And and your your investments were safe as long as they want the Chinese wanted them to be and not one second longer. And I think that became one of the great flashpoints. And the reason was the more he gained control, the more frightened he was of losing control. The Chinese had a long history of rebellions that broke out, the Taiping Rebellion in the 1860s, probably killed 75 million people. And so there's a certain fear of disorder in China, which is compounded by watching us because we're so disorderly. The other thing that was going on that that was fascinating, they developed actually under the Kuomintang, the the, uh, Nationalist Party in the 1930s, they developed a map of South China Sea that showed uh, the nine, it's called the Nine Dash Line. And it was literally sort of the claim. Now, this at this time, they're being attacked by the Japanese. The Kuomintang itself is not very strong. Uh, but one of their acts of nationalism was to develop a map which showed them occupying most of the South China Sea as Chinese water, not, not as international waters, but as Chinese. Well, they had slowly and steadily started to occupy the South China Sea. The most interesting thing they've done is uh, create entire islands. I mean, they'd, they'd find a place where there was an underlying mountain that, say, was 10, 15, 20 feet below the sea level. And they would just come in and keep dumping stuff there until they had built an island. And initially, of course, it was, oh, this is just an economic thing. Don't worry about it. It's a place for our fishing boats. We wouldn't really build a airfield here. Oh, well, we're building an airfield, but it's really just commercial and defensive. We certainly wouldn't put any bombers here. And then it was, oh, well, we're now stationing a lot of ships here. But after all, they're all fishing ships, even if none of them fish. And even if they're actually part of sort of a maritime national guard. And then they began to claim things that people thought belonged to to Vietnam and things that people thought belonged to the Philippines and things that people thought belonged to Taiwan and to Japan. And they just cheerfully kept doing it. And every couple of years, you'd have a collision. You would have, for example, a Chinese fishing vessel would collide with a destroyer off of, uh, let's say, the Philippines. And two days later, there'd be 200 Chinese fishing boats occupying the same space. And it turned out that they were deadly serious about stealing an area which has oil and gas, but more importantly, about a fifth of all the shipping in the world 
goes through the area the Chinese are claiming. So if the Chinese can pull this off, it'll be one of the great land grabs of all time. And they can then say, for your ship to go through, you have to pay X number of dollars. It's a remarkably audacious plan. And it was a further part, I think, of of many people in the U.S. and elsewhere deciding that you just couldn't deal with them. They were not compatible. And we'll be right back after this brief message. The ALEC annual meeting is almost here, and time is running out to sign up. This July 28th through the 30th, join the American Legislative Exchange Council in beautiful Salt Lake City for our 48th annual meeting. To register, go to alec.org backslash meetings. We'll see you in Utah. And we're back with Speaker Gingrich talking about the U.S.-China foreign policy. Yeah, it's so fascinating. As you know, Alec has been a friend of Taiwan for many years. We've been partnering with them, educating legislators about what's going on in in Taiwan. We will actually have the ambassador to um, the United States from Taiwan speak at our annual meeting coming up this July and have the president of Taiwan speak at our last meeting in December. So we've got a long, strong history And I'm reminded of traveling to Hong Kong with um, some of our mutual friends, Gay Gaines and Pete DuPont. And I was thinking since the Hong Kong handover in 1997, we've witnessed China kind of incrementally encroach and deny freedom to the Hong Kongers, which is a truly troubling development. Do you believe, and I think you've alluded to this, but do you believe that we can expect China to take a similar approach to Taiwan and other neighbors like Vietnam? I think they're different situations. I think in the case of Taiwan, the Chinese believe absolutely that it's part of China. It's the 19th province. That it's not separate, has never been separate. In their mind, it's never been separate, although you could argue historically that's not true. And I think it also scares them because just like Hong Kong, but to an even greater extent, Taiwan has proven that Chinese people can be self-governing. They can be free. They can be productive. They can have a high standard of living. They don't have to have a secret police. They don't have to have censorship. And so their fear at one level is that 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 will get understood by the Chinese people, and then you'll have a real problem. So part of this is that the, the very existence of Taiwan is a threat. And they also are afraid that if Taiwan succeeds in being independent, that that's a signal. They, they're they very aware that China has spent long periods uh, where, in fact, it's broken apart into multiple into different units. And so they're also afraid that some of the other provinces might say, hey, this is a pretty, I don't like Beijing anyway, and this is a pretty good deal. Maybe I'll follow the Taiwanese. So those things all militate against a peaceful long-term resolution. I think we hoped that they would get used to it, and I think they hoped that we would forget it. It's It's probably... The Taiwan Straits may be the most dangerous place in the world, because if we got into a real shooting war there, it would be a real problem. And I'm not convinced we could win. And I am convinced that it could escalate and become extraordinarily dangerous within a matter of days. So that's something you have to remember. Well, you know, Alec for 48 years has been kind of the intersection between business and the legislators, uh, developing policies that work for business and making sure that legislators don't overreach and um, grow the government so much so that businesses are are hampered. We're all pretty familiar with China's Belt and Road Initiative. This is one of the most troubling aspects 
I think, of the U.S.-China power competition. What do we need to know about the digital Silk Road, Huawei, and uh, competition for dominance in 5G? What are the things that, that we should be focusing on in America to make sure that we don't lose ground there? Look, we have, we're living through an experience right now where a group of uh, hackers has closed down temporarily uh, the largest pipeline in the United States. Yes. If you end up with Huawei and the Chinese investment in 5G and in artificial intelligence, if they gain a significant advantage, they could win a war with us without firing a shot. Uh, close down all the ATMs, close down you know, all the grocery stores, close down all the communications. And we literally wouldn't even know what they were doing. So this is a huge area. It's been one of the most frustrating things I've dealt with. I spent uh, three years uh, in the Trump administration trying to get them to understand how gigantic a problem this was. And you just, you could not get break through the bureaucracies. Combination of AT&T's lobbying, because AT&T would rather decay at its current profit margin than run the risk of, uh, of literally going bankrupt. If we, if we went to a 5G system, I think the odds are that AT&T owes so much money that they'd have a very, very hard time making the transition. So they've taken the position of helping block it. The Defense Department bureaucracy was afraid of it. And, you know, it, it strikes me along the line you're talking about, we're talking at a period where you have almost certainly a non-state actor, a group of people who got together, whose computer skills are so great that they could not only hack into the pipeline, we have no way of knowing who they are, no way of tracking them down, and no way of capturing them. And this has been going on for at least 15 years. Yeah, I'm thinking about the, um, you know, we still don't know the who was the source or who was behind the hacking and the shutdown down in San Jose and below Silicon Valley. And that was probably right. eight or nine years ago. And we still don't know how that was right. shut down. So, it's and so what, what you have is systems that no longer work. I mean, for example, you can't hire a world-class hacker to work in a bureaucracy. You can't pay them enough. You can't give them enough freedom. You can't respect the very things that make them a hacker. And so what you end up with is nice, really well-meaning bureaucrats who are trying to chase these guys who are geniuses, and they just fail. And nobody has stopped and said, this could become really dangerous, but it could. And there's an entire body of Chinese thinking that looks for alternative uh, nonviolent forms of coercion. And uh, this would be one of them. I mean, they, they would be, there's no reason to believe that the Chinese would fight only in a military sense. And I, I recently talked to Admiral Stavridis, who's just finished a book on World War 2034. And the entire book is, is dominated by the degree to which the Chinese gain an advantage in, in military cyber capabilities. And if I had a criticism with it, because Tavridis is a brilliant guy, it would be that they don't look at the logical pattern that, in fact, where it would really be used would be non-military and would just be used to paralyze the whole country. And, you know, you've got an audience of state legislators listening to this. And as proponents of federalism and pushing power down to the states, how do we help our legislators at the state level work with the federal government to try to address these cyber security threats? I think every state legislature should have a committee on cyber threats. I think different states should try different patterns of employment. 
because we, we literally don't know how to hire for government for public service. No. People who are geniuses, but you know, may not be fit very well into a normally organized office. We should be looking at what the penalty should be. I think that hacking is a threat to the entire society. And frankly, I would, I would have a death penalty and be very clear up front. We don't have very good gathering of information and you need to make it almost anonymous because otherwise the businesses won't cooperate. But we have a lot more businesses that get hacked and paid money than we know about because they won't say anything. So there's a whole zone there of how, how do we create a trusted uh, resource center that businesses can go to if they're being hacked. All those things could be experimented with by 50 different states without the cumbersomeness of the federal government. And this is going to really affect all of us. So it's, it's a one of those rare topics where having uh, that kind of commitment would be really important. Well, you know, we started a um, task force on Homeland Security, not because we think it's, you know, Alex's role and responsibility to lead those efforts from a kind of terrorist threat, but we were starting to see so many of our legislators, you know, rise up and in response to whether it was a hacking situation or whether it was, you know, flooding in Houston or, fires or hurricanes and and homeland security became kind of this responder you know first responder kind of question for our legislators and certainly through covid it's you know there's certainly some kind of threads to that and i think your suggestion of our legislators really thinking through long term how are they as a caucus and as a conference going to address that is a great solution and suggestion so we'll take that to our legislators when we get together with them in July. I guess as a last question, you know, we, we talked a lot about the threats that China has posed, but we haven't really talked about Africa. And, you know, U.S. has ceded ground to China on partnerships with countries around the world. And, you know, it seems to me, you know, mostly African nations, China has taken this increasingly aggressive stance against democratic neighbors, as we've discussed. They took a hammer to Australia over its criticism to Beijing's of Beijing's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, putting in excise taxes and bans on key Australian exports. What would concern you more, the uh, economic threat potential or the long-term strategic threat potential? Or are they so intertwined as to be kind of indistinguishable? Oh, I think they're totally indistinguishable. I think for example, there's just a report in the last three days that the Chinese are now planning to build a very large naval base on the west coast of Africa where it could be used to interdict the Atlantic. I'm, I'm truly worried because we won World War II in part because we could outproduce everybody else in the world. That's no longer true. And I think unless we confront our own national weaknesses, starting with education, uh, we're not going to have the capacity to compete with the Chinese. So in that sense, I think that the greatest long-term threat is just uh, sustaining the national capacity to be effective and to uh, be able to organize the resources to overmatch the Chinese. I think the second greatest one is to make sure that we don't allow people to be either bullied or bribed. Mm -hmm. uh, and a great deal of the, of the, uh, the Belt and Road Project is, is bullying and bribing. And I think We've already seen a number of places, Australia is a great example, where countries have looked at the Chinese for a while and said, no, you know, I'm not going to do the things you want me to do, 
period. I had an Australian ambassador say to me one day, there are more countries that want to join the American club than want to join the Chinese club. And I think uh, that's one of our hidden latent strengths. But if we get sloppy, if we allow our school systems to continue to decay, if uh, we allow our economy to decay, there will be a morning where people will say, I'd like to be on your side, but frankly, I can't afford it. Yeah, that's so true. And we as legislators and an organization that educates and helps work with our legislators need to make sure that they feel empowered and strong enough to push back and and not let that happen. Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, thank you very much for taking some time to spend with us and to discuss these issues. We will be sharing this with all of our legislators going forward, and we very much appreciate your time. Great. It's great to be with you. And I cannot overstate for the legislators how vital their role is in creatively responding to the challenges of the next generation. You have been listening to our conversation between Speaker Newt Gingrich and Alex CEO Lisa B. Nelson. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast and join us next time for more Across the States. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alex States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.